I would like to describe a field in which little has been done, but in which an enormous amount can be done. This field is not quite the same as the others in that it will tell us little of fundamental physics, but it will tell us much about the strange phenomena that occur just below our perception. In contrast to the natural philosophers of the past, the scientists of this field delve into the recesses of nature and show how she works in her hiding places. Their quest is to understand and create the imperceptible. After all, there is plenty of room at the bottom. Hello and welcome to the Materialism Podcast, an exploration of the past, present, and future of material science and engineering. My name is Taylor Sparks, and I am joined today by David Pearman of Lucidian. Now, David is the Flash Centering Business Manager at Lucidian. He has a PhD and a master's, both from uh, University of Birmingham, and he has a business management diploma from the University of Warwick, and he has been at Lucidian for 12 years. So, David, nice to meet you, man. How are you? Oh, good. Yeah, nice to meet you, too. Thanks for having us. Yeah, pleasure. I, you know, we are recording this. I am back in Salt Lake City, which is tragic because you are in Stoke-on-Trent, which is not very far from Liverpool, where I've been at for 12 months, but we couldn't quite make our schedules connect to record in person. So the next best thing is these sort of, you know, distance chats. Yeah, indeed. No, that was a shame. I think it was because we were in the middle of the big uh, office move and building move. And then I uh, rudely had some holiday to take, but you know. <laughs> <laughs> we will forgive you. I don't blame you one bit. Well, David, it's, it's a pleasure to chat with you. Um, a bunch of people have asked us to do an episode on flash centering. We've done a couple on SPS. We've talked about some gen general aspects of centering. So today we're going to talk about flash centering and why Lucidian is in this space. Um, but maybe before we dive into that and explain what is it and how it works, tell me a bit about Lucidian. What is this company? What are you known for? What are the type of products that you're you know, producing for people? Okay, so we don't actually produce any products in a sense. We're a uh, development and commercialization company. So I guess we're an advanced materials consultancy, um, both in the US actually and in the UK. But the UK side, where obviously I'm based, is uh, more advanced ceramics and ceramics expertise. So we help solve problems, whether it's um, developing new processes, new formulations, um, or we develop technology platforms and try and sell them on license. Um, and kind of, so we want to help people through out of commercializing technologies out of universities and academia and get them through the TR technology readiness levels. So through the TRLs up to sort of six and seven, where we might be able to deploy them in, uh, in our um, with our partners and clients that come to okay. work with us. So yeah, it's quite a varied place. So it's sort of like a very high-tech consultancy where you are taking these nascent technologies and helping them get to prime time. But a lot of these companies yeah. need a partner like you to make that happen. They need that expertise. Yeah, and so and so the reason why we were not recording in person was because we were moving the moving buildings. But that's because we've just expanded um, with some with some a big government funded award called a Strength in Places grant. Actually, so we're building an advanced ceramic pilot line. So and as part of that, we formed like the advanced uh, uh, the Midlands Industrial Ceramic Group. And so this is a consortium of advanced ceramic manufacturers. Um, that can have access to this pilot line we're building. And that's why we needed the space. So that's why we're relocated to Stone just down the road from Stoke, where the original headquarters was. That's, that's interesting. So it's federal funding, right? So it's state funding, which means that they want it to benefit more than just one company. So you mm -hmm. are allowing other companies to come in and use this advanced pilot line to test new ways of making ceramics, new fabrication techniques, new technologies. And then... Exactly. What do you get out of that? Like, how does that arrangement work? Um, 
how is this actually, yeah. why would you guys agree to do that? Because you're essentially, is it the benefit that you guys also get to develop your tools in-house? Yeah, so we, there's 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 all kinds of all kinds of benefits. So the UK funding system works, I guess, at sixty percent funded. So Lucidian is actually uh, doing a significant investment in this advanced ceramic pilot line as well. And there's a lot of in kind support as well. So overall, it's a forty two million pound project over the last over four to five years, and and eighteen million pounds is is funded across all the project partners. So we've got technical deliverables and projects we have to deliver during that. Um, and one of the work packages is to set up a, a, this advanced ceramic pilot line that will be free access for the uh, consortium members during the project time. Okay. The, leg yeah. the legacy of that will be that the, the Midlands is an advanced ceramic hub with an opportunity for people to come and utilize and, and benefit from this advanced ceramic pilot line, whereas they might not be able to have either have okay. access to these techniques yeah or they can't take their own manufacturing offline. What if they break it doing something new? You know, that sort of that sort of thing. So, and within that pilot line is the developments of flash sintering and, and, and so on, as you as you already alluded to, yeah. Well, that's kind of a refreshing take on business. Um, I think that's really a forward-looking model where you realize that, yeah, it means that we're gonna have to share some resources, but we all sort of benefit from it, especially in the establishment of this hub. Uh, well, this is awesome. This idea of looking forward to the future and establishing, you know, the Midlands as a ceramics hub. And it's not a far cry from the past, right? So I did my PhD. Uh, I, I worked at a ceramics company for years. My PhD was from a, one of these OG ceramics guys, an English dude from from Hull, actually, uh, named Dr. Uh, David Clark. Anyways, I went and visited him recently in November, and I was still in England at the time, but I went back for a, a conference in Boston. So I was chatting with him. And he's like, have you been down to Tro Stoke-on-Trent? I was like, what are you talking yeah. about? He's like, there's this ceramic museum. It was the heart of ceramic, you know, <laughs> manufacturer for centuries. And so anyways, tell me about this. Is this true? Like is, is Stoke-on-Trent really a place that has a storied sort of ceramic past? Yeah, well, I uh, I must admit I have limited knowledge in comparison to some of the uh, the Stokies, but yes, indeed it does. Um, so I guess it's it's known as the Potteries, um, and I think since the Industrial Revolution, it's been a, a hub for tableware, whiteware, and traditional ceramics manufacture. Um, and that was actually the birth of Lucidium was as the British Ceramic Research Association in 1948. So, so what is that? Was it usually when you see something like that prop up, it's proximity to resources like maybe the clay or the minerals that went into it, or sometimes it's access to cheap energy or the workforce, or what was the reason why this place sort of popped up the potteries? Can you tell me why is it? Well, first off, when was this all happening and what made Stoke-on-Trent the center for ceramic processing historically? Okay, yeah, I, yeah, good question. So I, I guess it must have been even back 17th century. Okay. It's it's known as the potteries, um, and that's uh, because there's a, a local abundance of coal and clay and the resources around the Peak District area and around Stoke-on-Trent, as well as the transport network, that being the canals. And then having recently been to one of the local museums in Stoke, um, I guess they had the technology as well um, in terms of the processability of these materials but also the formulation to become kind of world leaders um, as high quality kind of traditional ceramics and tableware okay fantastic so how fitting then that from this storied history of the potteries comes this renovation and this rebirth of ceramics but now with new technologies and new techniques and that brings us to the focus of today's episode which is on 
flash centering. So David, can you tell us what on earth is flash centering? How does it work? Explain it like really simply for us. Okay. So it, it quite simply is the application of an electric field to a ceramic during its sintering process. So how's that so, different than SPS? Cause that's also an electric field. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. So it's a pressureless technique. So we're literally in, in its simplest form in terms of contact flash, uh, we're sandwiching a cylinder of alumina or zirconia between two electrodes. We're heating the furnace up that the electrodes are just resting on the top and the bottom of that ceramic piece. Uh, heating the furnace up to say 800, 900 degrees, applying that electric field and then seeing a rapid, rapid sintering uh, process occur with some optical emissions. For those of have seen flash sintering in, in progress, it tends to glow quite nicely. Um, and then we're turning off the field and then cooling it down and then we're assessing the performance of that part. So it's a rapid sintering technique. Um, yeah, for many different reasons, whether that's lower energy, whether it's speed of manufacture, or whether actually we can control the mechanisms and the performance of that material in comparison to conventional techniques is what we're trying to do. So is this, you know, I think of like arc melting and arc melting, you've got a really big voltage difference and it actually arcs across a vacuum and that melts your sample. This is not that you're not dealing with that high of voltages. But my impression is that with flash sintering, you're dealing with higher voltages than SPS. I mean, those can operate at like 10 volts, just really high currents. What's the typical voltage range? So it can be one to two volts. It can be a couple of kilovolts. So in comparison to SPS, it's not in a it's not in a die. So the majority of your current and for, um, is passing through the sample, not around the die. There's no applied pressure. Um, although you can have applied pressure if, if you wish to. Um, so therefore, we saw it as a more scalable solution in terms of size of part or multiple parts at once. But it's not like um, arc melting where you literally like are directing the tip and you're sort of melting your sample as you go. This needs to be done everywhere all at once because if it's not, you're going to get cracking, right? You can't have one part of your ceramic sort of centering yeah. the, the region next to it not. So are there only certain types of shapes that this is amenable to? Can you only do plates, for example? Okay, so there's a couple of couple of answers there, which is which is great. Um, so you're correct in terms of contact uh, flash is limited in its geometry. So we have to find the right application for that and then and, and, and how we scale that. So it needs an intimate contact with a flat surface. And then indeed, you have to have a good thermal management system as to how you're going to make sure that that's repeatable and homogeneous, um, which is some of the some of the thermal management is one of the brilliant uh, technical challenges in terms of scaling this technology um, as we go. Um, and our approach to it is having a, a non-linear real-time control software. So you actually, it's designed to stop in real-time those arcs or those localization points um, and just provide a uniform a uniform system. Um, also, though, you do mention the fact that is it limited in geometry to that? We have developed a contactless system where we are igniting a plasma and rastering that plasma and sort of, if you imagine a taser, um, so where you've got that kind of spark between two electrodes, we're trying to have a essentially ignite a plasma at a low furnace temperature and raster that across the surface. So you could think about using that for thin layer ceramics and coatings, environmental Jeez. barrier coatings and things like that. So there's kind of two two arms to our flash sintering. There's the contact and the contactless, okay. um, as it were, with different different applications that we're trying to scale up. 
So I've never done flash centering. So this is interesting to learn about it, but I'm surprised that you can actually raster it. I would have assumed naively that, you know, if you center part of it and then you're passing over next to it, you're really hoping against hope that you're going to get these ceramics to sort of densify in the same ways that you won't get cracking along those interfaces. Is there cracking? Do you tend to get cracking along the sort of pathway of the raster? Yeah, indeed. So with the contactless, there is geometrical limitations as well. So it has to be a thin sample so as to sinter without causing too much, inducing too much mechanical strain there as you're getting that, that shrinkage. So we've sintered and, and looked at uh, rastering samples, anything from tens of microns to a few hundred microns thick. So things like environmental barrier coatings okay. for the prevention of hydrogen embrittlement on metals, or indeed looking at some coatings on CMCs um, and, and things like that. And the idea being is that you can get, this might be a product enabler. So something you couldn't do conventionally because to do it conventionally, you'd need to damage the substrate. And indeed, we're just wanting to get a power dissipation in the coating itself and not in the substrate. So it's all about the thermal management then of the plasma instead of the thermal management of the power through your piece. But the software that we're developing is, is kind of that control and that scale up, uh, that, that controllability um, and the prevention of, of any hotspots. Okay. Well, yeah. we just did an episode on thermal spray <clears throat> with GE. Okay. I don't know how familiar you are with it or not, but it's a very similar competing technology and it has some differences in thermal spray. Essentially you have a plasma and you're, you're taking whatever your material you want to deposit and you're mm -hmm. passing it in through that jet of plasma. It's then getting, you know, melted and volatilized and it's being deposited onto the surface. So mm -hmm. this is different because here, what you're sprinkling the powder, you're packing it onto the surface, you're painting it on, you're dip coating yeah, it. And then you're yeah. one of these methods, I'm guessing, followed by you're bringing the plasma to the, the material that's already on the surface and you're melting it. So what's the difference Indeed. in terms of microstructure and properties of these two different techniques? Yeah, great question. So I'm not into, I won't pretend to be an expert in terms of the thermal spray or the plasma coating for sure. But um, I would imagine you might use a, a TBC in terms of yep. a thermal, yeah, for, for a TBC. And then it's got a, a various porosity um, in order to provide that thermal conductivity and that thermal barrier protection. With an EBC, I guess, where we're looking, we're looking at a denser, a denser coating. Ah, so, so then you're looking at preventing, you know, nitrogen, oxygen. We're, we're looking at really preventing sulfides, you know, from, from penetrating into that substrate material or indeed hydrogen. Um, and so, yeah, preventing, it's more a pre preventative environmental barrier coating as opposed to a thermal management. So I think they're not necessarily competing techniques, but they are, they've both got their, their part yep. to play. Yep. Yeah. And indeed, and indeed, of course, uh, plasma spray is a, an industrially relevant and used, uh, whereas our contactless flash is on its way up the TRLs rather than already available. So, yeah. Okay. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I love it. I love adding sort of tools to the, they're like aerosteer quiver, right? Like you've got different techniques that are available now, depending on what you're trying to achieve. And it sounds like this is going to be for more dense uh, layers, at least in this contactless one. So in the contact one, something you said that caught my attention was you said that you can get local arcing, right? Uh, if you have these big, mm -hmm. you have good contact with big, say, plates on either side of yeah. it. Um, how do you influence certain parts of it? If, if, if one little spot in that plate is arcing, how are you going to mitigate that? Because I assume you're just applying a voltage across the entire plate, not in a, in localized yeah. regions. So how are you doing, how are you mitigating that? 
Indeed. So, okay. So, I guess, so the clever folks that work here, not me, I won't claim claim to have done this, but uh, it's the, um, the, the non-linear control software. Essentially, you tell it what to do, and it will prevent any of those spikes within the tolerances you've told it to operate. So we can pulse current in, we can ramp it slowly, we can, we can do all this. And it also, when it spots in real time, it spots anything about to localize or just and it will it'll it'll back off that power system straight away and allow it to re-homogenize so it's a flash sintering is a material there's not a one-size-fits-all right it's a material driven process so we have to we have to optimize flash sintering parameters for any material and if we say do a six-month study um like so one of the great examples that we're working on at the moment is flash sintering for the um, disposition, waste, nuclear waste disposition. So waste plutonium stockpile in the UK. And we started off by making surrogate fuel pellets of Syria because it behaves similar to uranium and, and, and so on in terms of its conventional sintering behavior. So we just make discs. So we've got, we've got pellets of this. And the first six months will go for, at the start will be blowing holes and melting the middle, right? And then we start to play with these parameters using this software where we're teaching it the limits of the material and how to optimize that. Um, and then, and we might do that by ramp rates, we might do that by pulses, we'll, and so on. We can choose how much power we want to get in, how much maximum voltage it is. And then at the end, and and of course, another important factor is redesigning that electrode interface. That matters a lot as well, depending on the material you're working with. Um, and then we'll go, you know, five months later, we're producing homogeneous pellets, churning them out, right? And that, and that's a really satisfying kind of feasibility study as to the potential benefit of flash. Um, and, and then how much time have you saved? How much energy does it, does it cost? Um, and so on. Why did Lucidian decide to get in the game of, you know, flash entering and, and other emerging ceramic technology techniques? And what have been some of the challenges you've come across? Yeah, so well, when I joined Lucidian, I joined as part of the new technologies group. So this was a um, actually quite a a bold a bold punt from the company at the time, I guess, in terms of hiring some some fresh faced folks. I didn't even know what a ceramic was when I when I joined in comparison to to what what it is now. Um, but um, and, and I was tasked with the uh, the the job of trying to find a technology to reduce energy consumption in the ceramics industry. Um, so after a little bit, and, and quite coincidentally, it was just as uh, Rishi Raj and University of Colorado uh, and Marco and, and Colonia and people had published that first paper on, on that flash sintering. Um, you know, I think it was titled, you know, rapid sintering of YSZ in under five seconds or something like that. And so th this kind of just came across my, I think uh, our CEO handed me this paper and said, have a read of that, like on one of my, in my first week. Um, and before I knew it, I was uh, sat in the, uh, in the cafe with Marco Colonia with a bag of whiteware in my, uh, in my suitcase, getting that through customs um, and, and just, and just flashing doing some flash experiments with him in the lab and then snowboarding at the weekend. So it was great fun. <laughs> yeah. And that's how we started really. Um, so yeah, essentially we, we started and then, then we won some, a grant, a funding grant to regional growth fund. And that allowed us to build a team of engineers and material scientists, um, to really try and investigate this properly for, for tileware. Um, and then flash at Lucidium was, was begun. Um, now the tileware didn't work out. Um, but 
um, we learned a hell of a lot along the way um, what not to do. And the whole kind of thermal management software and, and the way we do things now and why it potentially will work for nuclear waste disposition or EBCs was entirely born out of what we learned in forming the team and and, and and this basic kind of fundamental IP that we've developed in, in terms of how how to make it. It didn't not work for Tileware, but it didn't it wasn't enough given that it's a mass manufacturing, low, low cost, high volume product. Um, yeah. Okay. So I think I understand a little bit about the technology. I understand a bit about your role in sort of starting to learn about it and, and approach it. Now, what I'm curious about is let's say that you're successful, that you're seeing more and more instances where this technology delivers a good product, maybe at a lower energy, maybe it's a unique microstructure. It just seems promising. How are you going to convince established, you know, ceramic manufacturers that this is something that they should care about and start to actually put into practice? What challenges do you foresee along the way? It, yes, indeed. So I think in order to get this across the line and see this in a, in a factory, I think we, we work collaboratively with lots of different organizations. So we are an SME from Stoke-on-Trent. Um, and of course, we don't make equipment manufacturers. We don't, we're not an end user and a manufacturer. So for example, we work quite closely with academia to do the fundamental research. We have the technology expertise. And then of course we need the, the end users and the engagement. So we work collaboratively with equipment manufacturers and we have scale up designs on paper ready as we start to overcome some of the other technical challenges. Um, so, but then there are technical and commercial challenges, I guess, to overcome along the way. One thing we have to do is prove that it works on a one or two sample scale, uh, you know, as we're doing and have done um, for a few few applications. But then once you have that, I guess it might be worth thinking about other technologies that have emerged in the last few years um, that have had had some skepticism and are finding their niche in materials. So I, I guess additive manufacturing 3d printing is one of them where to be used commercially you that has to be looked at part by part and qualified part by part basis and it's the same for flash right you're applying an electric field to an individual piece of ceramic um so that has to be quality controlled for each individual part i think traditionally ceramics in bulk manufacture a lot of their um a lot of the, the 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 systems that they have in place, thermal thermal management within the huge furnaces, are, are kind of they're kind of a given because historically they've always been done that way. But as soon as you start rapidly sintering it piece by piece, you want to know what's happening on that. So I think there'll be a large sort of quality control issue um, and ways of monitoring that will both be a commercial and a technical challenge. Um, but the biggest one really is at the moment is the uh, the thermal management and that repeatability of mass mass producing these samples within the geometrical limitations that we have so that's why we're targeting and a focus on kind of that nuclear sector where the geometries for uh for the contact flash are unique and suitable for the technology and then the coatings or things like solid state electrolytes or or cathode systems in, in batteries as well where the contactless can come into play it seems to me like one of the challenges you're going to address with that is if you do want to understand how thermal transport is going to come into play, it's going to depend on how the green powder is placed on the surface of these things or between the plates and how well it's distributed. One of the benefits of SPS is that you're, you're squeezing it, right? So there's like this mechanical deformation. 
which is not uniform, right? It's definitely not uniform. Like you learn this yeah. basic experiments course that there's diewall friction, there's like there's gradients, but at yeah. least you're you're influencing it a little bit. Here, how are you making sure that the powder, let's say you're doing contactless, right? That it's being evenly distributed at at first, such that when you pass it over and raster it, you're getting a more even, you know, film created. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm curious. This seems like an open area where I wouldn't know yeah. how to solve that. No, well, indeed, I guess then you bring it back to the beginning of the of the talk where we talk about the the pilot line that we're developing. So I guess it, it it goes hand in hand with what's the formation technique in the process. Are you designing a process for flash sintering? Are you designing a material for flash sintering, or are you trying to make flash sintering work for a process? So um, it depends on where the client or or the end user is at in terms of their product life cycle. So I think flash sintering getting involved at that early stage, such as for solid state electrolytes or some battery materials, new, new emerging systems is a great way because we can then design and use that pilot line and how many different ways can we dip coat it? Can we tape cast it? Can we, um, and, and then we apply flash to it and, and, and do a proper study as to how that, that, how that's affected. Um, so yeah, that, that's that's what we'll do um, in terms of um, identifying applications for Flash and then designing a process for it, um, because it's a great question that we don't yet all have all of the answers to. Yeah. Okay, you know, as you were describing this, something came to mind. Um, you mentioned, you know, additive manufacturing. Has anybody done the contactless uh, Flash centering in an additive manufacturing sense, where you're putting down a very thin film? rastering, centering, putting down another thin film, <laughs> rastering, centering. Can you combine these things? I've never heard of it. I yeah. think it's possible though. Indeed. Well, it, well, yeah, we, we have started. Uh, yeah, yeah uh, it's, you've stumbled across one of the... Uh, oh, cool. Uh, actually, we had an Innovate project last year um, where we're looking at, uh, again, trying to print that thin layer. And then how do you... How do you and we have scale-up designs. We work with a company, uh, KWSP, in that consortium and University of Loughborough, where we were looking at... 3D printing um, battery um, interfaces, 3D battery um, electrolyte interfaces for maximum surface area with cathodes. Um, so yeah, I'm trying to sort of print and center, print and center. So very early stages that application, but you've you've Ooh, already hit cool. one of the ideas. Yeah, that's cool. I, I'm very anxious to hear more about that and hear if it actually works. Uh, we've done episodes with GE about added manufacturing where they talked about trying to print ceramics, and they're doing more like the binder jet approach, um, not this, but it seems like a, a cool competing approach and maybe it's going to work even better. Yeah. We've, there's a, there is a team working on the additive here as well. Um, yeah. With a lot of developing formulations for robo casting um, and, and many other techniques, but yeah, yeah. It's an exciting space for sure. Yeah. It's funny. Ceramics has been, it is literally the stone age, right? These are bits of rocks that we find ways to squeeze together and fire and bond. Um, and we are still, you know, thousands and thousands of years later of humanity finding clever ways to do that process better, more efficiently, to get better properties out of it. And Flash is just the latest in a long line of innovations there. So it's cool to see Lucidian, yeah. right, diving into this space and enabling this technology even further. Yeah, a long line of rock welders. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Okay, well, it's a pleasure to have you on today, Dave. Thanks for taking the time to chat with us. We appreciate it. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. Okay, we'll talk to you later. Cheers, bye.
If you want to keep up with the rapid advance of technology, you'll encounter materials challenges in performance, in energy demands, in cost. You need innovative thinking from a trusted partner that delivers results. At Lucidian, we're materials magicians. From metals to ceramics to polymers, we understand your products down to the atomic level and we can make them work in ways you may never have imagined. We ensure medicines and nuclear reactors stay safe. We reduce our clients' energy consumption and verify their CO2 emissions. We keep aircraft engines turning and the world's most iconic buildings standing. We make sure replacement orthopedic joints stand the test of time. We even have some of our products on Mars. We take projects from the outlandish world of ideas and scale them through to sustainable production and thus make the world a materially better place. Lucidian offers you the best of both jaw-dropping innovation and commercial know-how. So when you're asking the questions, is it possible? Will this work? Just come to us. Go to lucidian.com for more details. The Materials and Podcast is also sponsored by Materials Today. Visit materialstoday.com to stay up to date with the latest happenings in materials science and read some of their awesome articles that they publish. For example, in uh, today's episode, they have an awesome article that we're going to link in the show notes on a novel multi-phase flash centering technique for 3D complex shape that just came out last year. So you can take a look at that. I think it's be related to the topic that we covered today. Uh, you can also head over to elsevier.com and find out more about their journals in general, their conferences, books, and related programs. We're grateful that they've been a longtime sponsor of the show. Um, special thanks to everyone who listens to this podcast. As you know, it would really be awesome, and we would love it if you would give us a review. That is how other people find the show. So whether you're listening on iTunes or Spotify or Google, wherever you find your podcast, if you like it and you want to help us help more people to find the show, consider leaving us a review. We'd appreciate it. Um, as always, we love to interact with our audience. You can find us. We're most active on Instagram. So if you go to the at materialism.podcast page, you can chat with us, suggest new episodes, see the nonsense that Jared is posting there. Um, and obviously, special thanks to Alphabot and Colobite who make the music for this show. We appreciate all they do. They make really cool music. We think you should check them out. And thanks so much for joining us. We'll talk to you all next time. The inventors of fire, electricity, magnetism, iron, lead, glass, silk, cotton, the makers of tools, the captors of lightning, the architect, the engineer, the musician, are all beneficiaries of the materials of this world and are bound only by their imaginations in manipulating those materials. <laughs>